Chapter 3, 1-5 The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, put on a sackcloth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but for me, these last four years, it has felt almost easy to talk about doing God's work of justice as a Christian in the public sphere. Wherever I've looked on, on any given day, there always seemed to be something that I could get good and righteously angry at. Some bully I could publicly stand up to and oppose. Some terrible act of oppression by those in power and authority against which I could safely rage. <laughs> I even joked on occasion that for all the horrors we were facing, this was a really good time to be a pastor with a focus on God's justice because, man, you'd never want for work. And this whole time, it's been easy to sit on towers built of our own self-righteousness because the baddies have been just so bad that we really haven't needed to spend any time at all on self-assessment. We haven't needed to analyze our own complicity or assess our own role in the terrible events that have been surrounding us. And after all, who has time to take a good look at who we are or how we live our lives, individually and as congregations, when there are children in cages? Who has time to sit down with our church leaders and talk to them about how to avoid gossip and deal in fairness and mercy and all those little things of daily life? Who has time for that when we could be attending a protest about mass incarceration? Why, why should we bother questioning our devotion to white male capitalist business-driven leaders who are dominating the scenes within our community as elders and deacons and lay leaders? Why should we bother with that when police brutality is a thing? I mean, after all, there's only so many hours in the day, right? We've got, we got to take on the big things. But have you noticed how different things have felt this last week? Look, I know that for me, at least, it's been kind of nice, enjoyable even, to just sit back and appreciate a world without Donald Trump and his corrupt, manipulative, deranged supporters holding power. It's nice to spend time on Twitter without seeing his racist ramblings. It's nice to look at the politics section of the news and see stories appreciating some truly wonderful poetry. Stories witnessing to the return of scientific understanding to the American discourse on the pandemic and never once 
having to see that rambling lunatic, that sun-dried, brown-shirted raisinette of other people's despair, that high school jock-slash-bully who never managed to do his own work for history class, so he just put Hitler for every answer in an attempt to walk that fine line between statistical probability and edginess, never once seeing that guy in the news trying to lie his way into nuclear supremacy. Oh, God, it has been a relief. Well... A relief of sorts, anyway. But as someone who has very much made a lifetime commitment to speaking the truth to, about, and around power, I, I have to admit that it's been a little disconcerting. I mean, for the last four years, it has been really easy to be an advocate for the suffering, the oppressed, the poor, the immigrant, and all those in need. It's been easy, really easy, to write and speak and stand up to the sort of virulent, destructive demagoguery that makes the rich richer and the poor dead. It's been easy to cry out at the injustices in our society that stand as an offense to our loving God and to crack some admittedly cheap shots at a guy who, in addition to being a world-class moral abomination, also left us plenty of low-hanging fruit to take pot shots at, too. <laughs> in short... Trump has been a clear and present danger to all that is central to practitioners of the Christian faith. And now that he's gone, he's been replaced by a man who seems to be, by all appearances, a fairly decent, if incredibly bland person. Someone who is by no means an advocate for radical grace and mercy but who at least doesn't seem to be actively delighting at the prospect of being able to weaponize the institutions of the state to murder entire classes of people that he just doesn't like. And since I'm not inclined to immerse myself in crazy conspiracy theories that paint Biden as oh, some sort of man-lizard hybrid or a child cannibal or whatever new fiction is no doubt already spreading around the internet in order to have for myself a truly suitable, morally bankrupt opponent, this leaves me with an uncomfortable question. And it's the question I think we're going to have to wrestle with today. What, what do we do now? What does it look like? What does it feel like to act for justice when the moral arc of the universe actually does seem to be bending, if ever so slightly, towards justice? Because the truth is, it is much easier to act for justice, to advocate for grace and mercy for the suffering, freedom for the oppressed, and relief for the poor, when you're advocating against comically, blatantly obvious oppressors. Against people that we can very easily understand as our enemies, and therefore, as enemies of God. When we have a clear and obvious enemy to fight, that takes the pressure off us. When we have a giant to slay, we don't need to look at our own failings. When there are great and terrible moral crises ravaging the lives of the innocent, it is so very easy, not even necessarily wrong in and of itself, to prioritize their immediate suffering over our own self-reflection and accountability. It's so easy, in fact, that we can very quickly find ourselves thinking that our own self-reflection and accountability don't really play into things. We can find ourselves settling down onto a hill of our own self-righteousness, so certain of our own 
moral superiority, and absolute spirit-driven rightness that we can utterly fail to pursue those qualities of righteousness that God so fully embodies, and so too demands of us, the qualities of one who loves all, welcomes all, and invites everyone to the table. All right, so what does God's true righteousness look like in action, apart from this kind of holier-than-thou great crusader mindset that so many of us, including myself, have adopted over the last few years? Well, if you were to single out and ask any random pastor off the street, after they were done being totally confused as to both how you identified them as a pastor at random and why you dragged them off the street for a scriptural question, said pastor might then direct you to look at the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah is a great example of what it means to practice righteousness. It is, in a great many ways, the story, the story, of engaging in God's righteous behavior, whether you want to or not. In fact, when many of us read through it, we often see it as a nearly foolproof narrative example for how to listen to and follow God's clear-cut directions. When we read the story, the sequence of events as we tend to remember them basically goes like this. God says to Jonah, Yo, Jonah, do the thing! In response, Jonah says, No, I am absolutely not going to do the thing. Jonah then gets on a boat and commits himself to the holy, sacred, and above all, totally well-thought-out mission of trying to sail an 8th century BCE boat so fast that an omnipresent God can't catch it. God, in a scathing indictment of Jonah's higher reasoning skills, says, LOL, big fish! And lo, there was a big damn fish. Later on, said big fish has a mild case of prophetic indigestion, after which God says, Did I stutter? Go do the thing! So, you know, Jonah does the thing, repentance occurs, and for the only time in recorded history, a major nation repents in entirety and turns to God. And that's, that's the game, right? That's the story. The moral of the story is that if you listen to God, God will use you to make these big, dramatic, world-changing, soul-saving repentances happen through the great and wonderful power of the Almighty. And if you don't, that same great and wonderful power will rework the digestive tract and culinary preferences of local marine life, and not in a way that you'll find particularly enjoyable. But you might notice that the book isn't titled Jonah Potter and the Repentance of Nineveh. In fact, the actual encounter with the nation of Nineveh, which we all too think of as the whole point of Jonah's story, only really shows up in this chunk of chapter 3. The first two chapters are all about Jonah running away from God, and the last one is about Jonah being really profoundly unhappy about what just happened at Nineveh. It's, it's almost like the encounter with Nineveh is more of a background piece to Jonah's story, and not actually the main point. You see, when we read the scripture, we often read it looking for simple easy-to-understand recipes for personal success or collective success, or just generally instructions for how to live a good life and a good godly life. When we read through Jonah's story, it's easy to see that moment of repentance for Nineveh and think, okay, I got it. God's image of repentance is a wardrobe change and a few skipped meals. Good to go. But the story isn't actually about 
Nineveh's repentance. It's about Jonah's struggle with repentance. Throughout this story, God isn't trying to save Nineveh. An omnipotent, omnipresent God could do that so much easier anyway without repurposing wildlife to relocate an irate Hebrew would-be prophet. No, God is trying to save Jonah. Jonah is a man who holds strongly to his sense of moral superiority. He knows what is right and what is wrong. He knows who his enemies are, and he knows who his God is. He is so firm in his convictions, so utterly convinced in his path of righteousness, that when the Almighty descends with a command that contradicts this sense of self-righteousness, this understanding in his heart of who truly deserves salvation, he tells God no right to God's utterly incomprehensible face. But the story didn't end with Jonah grudgingly agreeing to do the will of the Lord, wandering wandering into Nineveh smelling of ambergris and shame. It didn't end when Nineveh did what they were always going to do in the first place and repent and turn to the Lord. Jonah's so-called success in turning the city doesn't end the story. It doesn't give us our lesson because Jonah, he continues to sulk. He continues to sit, suffering in the conflict between his own sense of self-righteousness, his own distaste at having saved those who he was totally convinced were unworthy of salvation. The story is about Jonah wrestling with the growing self-awareness that the soul most in need of saving didn't belong to the Ninevites, belonged to Jonah. You see, the truth that God brings us through Jonah's story, the truth I think we all need to wrestle with today, is that our faith isn't transactional. We're not looking for the right actions to put in that holy slot machine in order to get it to pay out in salvation for ourselves or for others. We're not looking to produce numbers of conversions, rack up our testimonial count, or fill up the offering plates. We're not tasked with standing tall in our self-righteous assertion of our own moral and ethical superiority, taking on false gods and genocidal prophets while calling all the world to repent and start acting right. We are not meant to be the model of faith to which we force others to adhere. The story of Jonah is about we, just like him, being tasked with looking into ourselves and seeing the ugliness of our own hatreds, the hypocrisy of our own biases, and the deep abiding inequalities that run through our practice of faith. We're tasked not to see others in need of repentance, but to see ourselves in truth and seek repentance for what we see. The greatest spiritual discipline isn't evangelism. It's repentance and self-correction. For four years, we've been telling ourselves that Trump is the problem. For decades, we've been placing capitalists in seats of power within our churches, measuring the success of God's work in terms of full pews, 
overflowing offering plates, and profitable management of our facilities. For centuries, we've been telling ourselves that if it's not popular, it must not be right. For even longer, we've been telling ourselves that American Christianity is the faith, that the two things are inseparable. But God's work isn't dependent on our own sense of self-righteousness. The work of the kingdom doesn't change to suit who we call our enemy today, who we hate today, or who we might think of as a friend today. So, yeah, things in the United States, at least, are honestly better this week than they were last week. The economy is slowly clearing up like the acne on the face of a 23-year-old who just made his way through the worst ravages of pubescent dermatological terror. The country has started treating climate change as an actual existential threat rather than a children's boogeyman that can be defeated by just closing your eyes and humming very loudly. And we've managed to go a full seven days without a concerted attempt by domestic terrorists to overthrow the government. But there are still kids in cages. The American military is still at work in the world, ending lives in pursuit of economic gain for the wealthiest of American capitalists. The poor are oppressed, the homeless are cold, and the sick go unhealed. The immigrant and the refugee are neglected and expelled. Black and brown bodies are still getting beaten and murdered, while their murderers hide from the consequences behind a dime store child's excuse for a badge. The shaman may have been removed from the Senate floor, but the cult still stands strong. It's easy to do good and holy work when we have an easy target, like the Trump administration. It's easy to fill ourselves with grand feelings of self-righteousness, to stand filled, burdened with glorious purpose, and demand the advent of God's justice at the peril of God's judgment. And it's easy to do all that when the focus is on converting Nineveh, on correcting the evils of other people. It's a bit harder once Nineveh puts on the sackcloth and we find our hearts still troubled, our feelings still unresolved, our souls still unfulfilled. Because the story was never about Nineveh and our story was never about Trump. Our story is about God and God's justice. Our story is about a God who calls us to repent. A God who calls us to confront our own complicity in the sins of a nation, to confront our own biases that provide the fertile soil in which this fascism grew and flourished, and to confront our own internalized hatreds, which whisper to us in the secret chambers of our hearts that we and we alone know who is worthy to be saved. My friends, Today we rise and go out into a world that remains as desperately in need of help as it did last week, last month, and last year. It needs us to be there, but it doesn't need us as saviors, doling out righteousness with our right hand and condemnation with our left. What the world needs from us is an awareness of our imperfection and complete lack of righteousness, the humility to serve without dictating, and the temerity and persistence 
to stand in all the places where there is hurt, suffering, and pain, and say, Here I am, Lord. Let it be as you will, and let me be of help, even if it's only a little bit. For I am but a small and broken piece, but today I am here, and today I will serve the Lord. So let's go out, and let's really serve God together. So now as we come to the end of our time together, I want to thank all of you that have sat with us and listened and prayed with us today. Uh, This journey that we're all taking through our own paths of repentance, uh, reckoning with our own internalized self-righteousness, and trying to figure out how to live God's justice into this world, it's a tough path. And it's not one that we can easily walk alone. And I want you to know that you're not walking it alone yourself. If you're looking for a community, if you are looking to connect with people, if you have a community and you just want to connect with more people, I want to encourage you to reach out. Uh, Our small community here, uh, we meet on a Discord server, we just spend some time together. We're here and we always want to welcome you to come join with us and to talk with us and to share some time with us. Every, uh, Every Saturday, we get together for a series of conversations on what it means to be the church in this new era. And if nothing else, I would love to invite you to join us for that. Um, if you want to get in touch with me about that, you can find me on Facebook or through the podcast channel. I'll even leave a link in the description of where you can go to sign up for one of these conversations. And that'll get you the link to our community's Discord server as well. In the meantime, no matter what you're doing with your time or where you are on your journey or how life's treating you. I just want you to know that I'm praying for you and that God is going to be with you and is with you wherever you are, however you're doing, and in every place in your life. God bless, and we'll catch you next week. (laughs) 